As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. When you think of the Champions League, who comes to mind? Maybe Arsenal, Wolfsburg, Manchester United... No disrespect, but it's probably not Slavia Praha, Paris FC, or Zank Poulton, is it? Et c'est terminé! La qualification du Paris FC pour la phase de groupe de l'UEFA Women's Champions League. Last year's finalists, Wolfsburg, semi finalists, Arsenal, plus Manchester United and Juventus won't be in this year's Champions League. They were knocked out in qualifying. Those other three will be. So, does the Women's Champions League need a shake-up to make sure we're seeing the best competition possible? I'm Sophie Penny, and from The Athletic, this is Full-Time Europe. Paris FC gewinnt das Rückspiel in den Playoffs mit 2 0 gegen den VfL Wolfsburg. I'm with The Athletic's women's football reporter, Charlotte Harper. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Sophie. And The Athletic senior writer Michael Cox is with us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Sophie. And hello to you listening as well. So there were some big shocks, weren't there? Which of these big omissions from the Women's Champions League surprised you both most? Michael first. Well, I was at both legs of the semi-final between Wolfsburg and Arsenal, which is, I think, one of the best two-legged ties I've seen, particularly the way, you know, there were 60,000 at the Emirates, went to extra time, Brilliant game. So the fact neither of those are in the the Champions League proper this year does seem a little strange. I have to agree with Michael. Yeah, Arsenal and Wolfsburg, big blows for the competition. We knew it was always going to be tough for Arsenal, given that the Champions League qualification was so soon after the World Cup. And that's something, again, that the calendar needs to be looked at. Manchester United will come on to as well, but it's their first season in Champions League, so... To not have Arsenal and Wolfsburg was a big surprise. Definitely a big surprise. Uh, Later, we'll be discussing whether the women's game needs a hard salary cap after comments from Crystal Palace co-owner and chairman Steve Parrish. I think the introduction of the salary cap is there to try and prevent, you know, clubs like Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, Manchester United, those with the, you know, really big Premier League backed outfits, being able to sort of pay their way to the top. To the Champions League. How did we get to a point where so many big teams didn't make it through qualifying? Well, here's how the qualification system works. Okay, get ready because this is quite complicated, but I'll make it as simple as possible. 
There are 16 teams who make it to the Women's Champions League group stage, but only four automatically qualify as a result of their previous season success. And that's the easiest bit. Those four are the Champions League title holders and the winners of the leagues from the three highest ranked associations, which according to UEFA and their coefficient are France, Germany and Spain. But because Barcelona won the Champions League and their domestic league last season, that next automatic qualifying spot went to the winner of the English league. So that meant that this year's automatic qualifiers joining Barcelona were Lyon, Bayern Munich and Chelsea. Still with me? The rest of the teams have to go through qualification, which is two rounds long. There's a champions path for domestic league winners, the lower ranked champions enter in round one of qualifying, but the higher ranked champions enter in round two. The league path consists of teams that didn't win their league, but could be considered as highly commended. The runners up in the six highest ranked countries, like Man United, enter qualification in round two, but WSL third places Arsenal and Italian runners-up Juventus were set to go about qualification the long way round, starting from round one. And, of course, in the case of Arsenal and Juve, finishing in round one this year. As we all know, UEFA loves a draw, and this tried and tested method was used to determine who would face each other in these qualifying rounds. And because this is all potluck, it meant that we saw in round two, PSG against Man United, meaning one of those big footballing clubs wasn't going to be in the group stage and it was Tara to the English side. We're nearly there, I promise. Once qualifying is done, the 12 teams that won their playoffs join the automatic qualifiers to make a 16-team group stage. And that is how it works. I hope you managed to follow all that. So Man United knocked out by PSG in qualifying 4-2 on aggregate. Here's what Mark Skinner had to say about that. We deserve to be at this level. I have no doubt about that. There are teams that are going through to this competition that are not good enough. The standard, our standard is better than that standard. And that it's, it's crazy that we have to play PSG at this level, at this, at this qualifying round. Crazy, and it needs to be something that's addressed. I hope that something has changed because you want the best teams in, in Champions League, not, not just to spread off some average teams. Charlotte, first, what did you make of that reaction to Manchester United getting knocked out? Was it justified? I can understand Mark Skinner's frustration, but we've known that this format needs tweaking. And he knew that going into the competition. Everyone knew the format that was on the table. But at the end of the day, Manchester United didn't win. And that's what they needed to do to make the group stages. And you cannot underestimate PSG. Like PSG, twice runners-up in the Champions League, four-time semi-finalists. They are a powerhouse of the of the women's game. And I understand why he wants the best teams in the competition. But what are the best teams? The best teams are the, the teams that win on the pitch. He's right to call for a change in the Champions League format. But if you win the game and say, look... You know, we've won and we're into the group stages and we're very happy with that. But this qualification format needs to change regarding those teams who don't win their league competitions. Then you think, OK, yeah, reasonable. But the way he did it, it just sounded like sour grapes. Do you think there's a kind of arrogance around the WSL, Michael? Or do you think people are just thinking this because of Man United's men's team? Why do you think people were up in arms? I think there probably is a little bit of arrogance about the WSL, actually, because I think it is, it's ahead of the other leagues in, in a commercial perspective in terms of attendances are going up these days. But we haven't yet seen English clubs really dominate Europe. I mean, Chelsea got to the final 
what was it, two, three years ago. But the performance overall in Europe has been fairly underwhelming. So, yeah, in terms of actual the quality, the strength of the sides, I do think that's that's maybe something that English football needs to be aware of. You know, you don't have a, a God-given right to be in the Champions League. And I agree with Charlotte. I think, I think Skin is basically right that there should be some tweaks and, and probably it would be good for the competition if fewer of the big guns were against each other. But it's it's a to come out with that when you have just lost a game, I think is um was probably a little bit unwise. As Charlotte says, if you win, fine. I think you can make the point, you know, when the draw was made. But um yeah, in in the immediate aftermath of the game, I think you've got to be a bit more humble and, and just speak about what went wrong on the pitch. You've both said that you think that changes should be made. Let's pretend we're in charge. How would we go about changing the Women's Champions League? Charlotte, let's kick off with you. It's a million dollar question. Should be paid bigger bucks than that if uh, UEFA are <laughs> um, thinking about this as well. And, and that's the thing is that the current model was brought in in 2021. And for that four year cycle, nothing's going to change until 2025. So they, UEFA have to think about this competition for the next four years. So we're looking at, okay, what does a 2028 to 2029 season look like? And if you think the COVID pandemic was in 2020, and then 18 months later, you had 91,000 for Barcelona against Real Madrid, would you have predicted that for the Women's Champions League? So it is a, a real difficult space in the women's game because some aspects are growing exponentially, but others aren't. Where do you sit in that limbo mode? I spoke to several people who have consulted leagues and teams uh, and governing bodies on competition formats in my article on The Athletic. And they say you, you have to be very careful about expansion. The obvious thing is, oh, yeah, just expand more teams in. Do it like the men's format. But A, do we have enough depth of quality in the women's game to expand to 32 or even 36 teams like the Swiss model is doing with the men's team. But B, you ha you have to do it incrementally. You can't just go from 0 to 60 straight away because the women's game is still a young market. It's not as mature as the men's game. It's not as established. So I understand the willingness to expand and to get those big teams in. Of course, big teams, commercially speaking, get more eyeballs on the product Increased commercial deal, increased sponsorship deals, higher attendances. So when you're trying to sell something, you're going, look, there's 60,000 at the Emirates, Champions League record. So I get that, that you want to keep the big teams in for as long as possible. The crucial thing is competitive balance. If you get these big teams in, they're going to get more money from the Champions League. So more money from the Champions League means you can invest in your coaching staff, invest in your players, which makes, look at Chelsea you become a stronger team domestically. But if only those teams are getting that Champions League revenue, you're just going to destroy your domestic leagues because the gap is going to get even bigger and bigger. So in five, ten years' time, women's football, the health of women's football, may not be as rich as, as is now because it's going to be too predictable. The other point is other markets. England... Spain, France, Germany, they've got those big hitters. And I wouldn't even say those markets are flourishing. Look at France, for example. Two big teams in Lyon PSG but, and Paris FC coming up, but the rest of the league is dwindling. As Look at Spain as well, the competitive imbalance there. But 
UEFA have to decide what are its priorities. You've still got to grow the domestic markets of Austria or uh, Romania or the Scandi countries or Bosnia, look at Sarajevo or anything like that. Otherwise, if you have too small a market of just those top four, you haven't got a product. What do you think of that trade-off, Michael, between the sporting integrity and making sure that these smaller teams like Paris FC, you know, who've pulled off massive shocks, get the chance to shine on the big stage and get the chance to get the money versus the immediate commercial benefit of having a, a big name like a Viv Miedemar or, or a Beth Mead who is very marketable? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth framing kind of the debate we're having. It's about trying to find the balance. I mean, there's almost a scale between, you know, on the left side of a scale, you you could say, well, we'll have a competition where there's 16 teams from 16 different countries. And on the right of the scale, you can say, well, let's just have the best teams in the competition, the best 16, in which case you probably only have, I don't know, five or six countries represented. So that's the debate. And I think the situation we've got at the moment is, I'd say the Women's Champions League is a little bit too far to the left in terms of, I think it's going to be 11 different nations represented in the 16, which in itself is great. But I think it does mean we end up with some uneven matches. I don't want to predict how the matches this season will go. But last season we had FC Zurich in the group stage. They played six, lost six, scored two and conceded 26. So you do end up with some matches like this. And on the other hand, I think the the men's Champions League is a bit too far to the right, if you like, in terms of, you know, 16 of the 32 qualify automatically from the big four leagues of England, Spain, Italy and Germany. So it's about finding the balance. I, I would still tweak things. I think you can still change the qualifi- uh, the qualification system so there are fewer games between, let's be honest, Arsenal and Wolfsburg, like two, two contenders to win this competition would have been drawn against each other. And then maybe you end up with rather than 11 nations represented, you end up with eight or nine, but you have a couple of stronger teams in. So maybe the tweak is uh, less dramatic than I first thought. In terms of changing qualification, some people have been talking about changing when qualification is, because obviously big clubs like Arsenal and Wolfsburg were missing players who were at the World Cup. They didn't have that solid training block, whereas smaller clubs like Paris FC had that chance for that rest and that training. Charlotte, do you think that could be a potential solution? Absolutely. The the World Cup was played way too late this summer. And that has to be more communication between the global governing body, FIFA, and the European governing body, UEFA. If you put the World Cup earlier, then you have that window for players to have their break and then have some sort of a pre-season before they hit the qualification in the Champions League. So I suppose that will depend year on year when the big tournament is in the summer. Is there anything else we could change? Uh, Charlotte, you mentioned in your article potentially changing that coefficient system which decides uh, which champions go automatically through? Yeah, the coefficient is really interesting and an algorithm that is very complicated. (laughs) We're getting nerdy here. (laughs) It's based on the country's club performance in Europe within the past five seasons. So England are fourth behind France, Germany and Spain. So Arsenal and Chelsea reached the semi-final last year and Chelsea reached the final in 2021. But apart from that, English clubs have been poor in Europe. Manchester City failed to get into the group stages, losing to Real Madrid in consecutive years. Chelsea failed to qualify for the knockouts in 2021. 
So if you alter the coefficient system by weighing it in favour of the bigger domestic leagues, such as France, Germany, Spain and England, then you get more of those teams in the group stages and into the competition for longer. That goes back to our argument of that being better for the product. So more eyeballs, more commercial deals, more sponsorship deals. The thing is with the coefficient system, again, that favours the bigger teams. The problem with the WSL is, is that we say it's arguably the most competitive. I think it is. And it's the only full-time professional league across Europe. But under the current model, the winner of the WSL wouldn't even qualify for the group stages automatically. Because only the winner of the top three countries, so that would be the winner of France, the winner of Germany and the winner of, the Spain, of Spain, would go directly into the Champions League. It's only because the title holder has always been from France, Germany or Spain that the fourth spot gets handed to England. So I think really that needs to be looked at given that it is so hard, A, to win the Women's Super League, but then difficult for second or third, like your Arsenal or Manchester United, to be then drafted into the league path of the Champions League rather than the champions path. So then that comes back to the qualification that that needs to be looked at. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to Full Time Europe with Sophie Penny. Michael, some people have been calling for a second tier competition, like a a Europa League. We'll come on to the idea of a Super League in a minute. But <laughs> first of all, let's let's talk more realistically, potentially, about a second tier competition. Do you think that would work? Yeah, potentially. I think um, it's difficult really to know how much there would be interest and how much there would be. There is depth in quality across Europe to make something like that work. I think if I was in charge and looking to introduce a second system, I'd probably try and format it completely differently and just have maybe like a straight knockout or something like that. Because I don't know, the Europa League, it's not, you know, in the men's tournament, it's it's not that glamorous. I think it's got a kind of almost boring stigma attached to it. Maybe unfairly, because I think some of the teams from the the smaller nations obviously really, really thrive in that. And obviously they've got the, the Conference League as well now. But I think for the for sides like Arsenal, Manchester United, it, it does feel almost like an inconvenience, which I know is a little bit harsh. And again, it's their problem if they if they don't beat the side to qualify for the Champions League. But yeah, at the moment, I'm just not sure there's the, the depth and quality to justify that, to be honest. I think there should definitely be a second tier competition, not a carbon copy of the Europa League. And the women's competition does it in its own right. Um, where they can build their own format. But there are a number of clubs that would benefit from that development to play in Euro. Take a, a Brighton or an Aston Villa, for example, who are trying to push in the WSL and could really use that competition. A Juventus, 
uh, is another example. Or, again, Arsenal-Wolfsburg, who aren't having any European competition this year. So for the growth of the, the game, I think a second-tier competition is really, really important. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek idea, and I didn't, I don't think it would actually happen, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Arsenal-Wolfsburg could say, look, we played a game last year that attracted 60,000 people. Like, why don't us and Manchester United and some other big team just set up our own mini tournament and play it throughout the season? Like, you know, if you if you can be relatively confident you get fans through the gate. I mean, I realise that they're coming through the gate because it's the Champions League, because it's a prestigious competition. But it's a lot of lost revenue that Arsenal will have to forego just from, you know, from the broadcasting side of things, but also just the, the gate receipts. You know, if, if you're getting 60,000 people in, I think they're paying 10, 15 pounds each. It's a lot of money. The Arnold Clark Cup. <laughs> the Champions League rejects uh, rejects tournament. Well, yeah. No, you can't you can't brand it like a rejects. We've got to come up with a better name. Not the Arnold Clark Cup and not the Champions League rejects. Somewhere in between. But I mean, you know, obviously this is not a 100% serious suggestion, but I think this does feed into the idea that if UEFA don't organise a competition that satisfies the big guns, then you get a breakaway competition. You know, you get something like the Super League or, you know, hasn't really happened properly in football but in other sports you do get to a situation where sadly the the big clubs or the big players become so powerful that they say if the governing body isn't organizing something that basically suits their financial needs and doesn't you know doesn't exploit their full commercial potential then they try to go things alone so if there was no changes at all to the Champions League in the next 10 years and every year we have an Arsenal or Wolfsburg being locked out of the competition and lots of other clubs not sure they're going to be in the competition, then what happens? Then I think you do have a Super League. Charlotte, what do you think about that? The prospect of a Super League? Everyone mentions the Super League as if it's like this Halloween, ooh, like a taboo <laughs> topic. Um, it comes back to the same problem. Do you want short-term success, which is often desired in football, or long-term success? So short-term, you make more money from those big clubs and with solidarity payments, that's payments to clubs which aren't involved in the competition so that they can develop, they get filtered down. The big question is, how big a slice of the pie will those big clubs want? If, if they said, oh, you know, we'll share it equally just to advance the women's game to kickstart it, fine. But is that likely to happen? No, because the big clubs want the biggest revenue so that they can dominate. It then comes back to the other issue is that you just destroy your domestic leagues again. And you miss out on teams like Paris FC. Again, jeopardy, like who's going to win the league, all those kind of questions. But your big clubs getting your biggest amount of money, you go back to your domestic league, you wipe the floor, it becomes predictable, you lose your domestic league and the cycle starts again. So that creates even bigger disparities. We've come back to the same question of well, what happens to other markets where you haven't got established clubs, are you just going to let them waste away? And where's the interest in them domestically? Can they ever play a Barcelona? Can they ever get that interest, bring the big names to their hometown to then generate the interest domestically? So short term, yep, you'll make a lot of money, but destroy your markets. Long term, the European Super League is probably not the way best way to be. 
It's a difficult balance, isn't it? Supporting the teams that are right at the top and the teams that are still trying to go. We'll see whether UEFA take our hints at the end of the 2024-25 season and make those changes. That will all be covered on The Athletic if they do. And do check out Charlotte's article on this on The Athletic too. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlotte Harper. Thank you. Thanks, Sophie. And Michael Cox, thank you. Thank you. Next, we're going to rotate in studio and keep that discussion going about the disparity between the top and the bottom teams as we talk salary caps. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to Full Time Europe from The Athletic. Last week, Crystal Palace co-owner and chairman Steve Parrish said this about the women's game. I'm very passionate that we need to put in cost controls and salary caps. If you look at the WSL, the top four or five clubs last year had a positive goal difference of 166 and the rest were obviously minus 166. So there's a disparity in quality because of the access to talent and there's a disparity in quality because there's no strict salary cap. You can spend as much as you want. Just to be clear, there is a soft salary cap where 40% of turnover can be spent on salaries, but that turnover includes the parent club, which helps the Premier League back teams. I'm now with The Athletic's women's football editor, Chloe Morgan, and women's football correspondent, Katie Wyatt, to settle this debate. Hi to you both. Hello. Hiya, you're right. We had a good chat about this, didn't we, when we heard this news? Yeah, I don't know if we'll settle this debate because it was one of those where I came in quite strong with my own views of what I thought were, oh, everyone will agree with this. And then Chloe said, oh, actually, and I was like, oh, yeah, and very much ended up kind of changing uh, my thoughts a little bit. So I don't know if we'll reach a solution in this. It was. It was a very heated debate. Well, it was triggered by um, Jesse Parker Humphrey's tweet about, you know, Steve Parrish and, and what he'd said. And I think it's the kind of tweet that does provoke a lot of reaction. I mean, it's obviously going to, you know, it's a it's a very controversial subject at the moment. So, um, yeah, it's good to be doing a bit of a, a deep dive explore on this. It is pretty controversial, isn't it? Chloe, you were Crystal Palace's goalkeeper for two seasons, weren't you? Does Steve Parrish have a point? Yes, is the weird one, and I think well, like it's um, it's a it's a weird place for for any player um, and any advocate of the women's game to to be saying, okay, well, we should limit the amount that that players earn. I've always been an advocate for obviously increasing salaries, increasing welfare, increasing the standards of the game, and the Karen Carney report was kind of saying that the average WSL salary is somewhere between the region of sort of, you know, twenty five, twenty seven thousand pounds, which is you know when you're living in London, some of these um, some of these clubs where some of these clubs are based, it feels that that probably isn't enough to reflect the work that's going in especially when you sort of you know compare that to some of the the great men's salaries out there I mean some of the players are obviously on four or five hundred thousand pound a week plus goal bonuses plus sponsorships plus all the advertisement and, and everything else that they do so it does feel like a weird position to say well actually Steve does have a point and I think the overarching principle around trying to introduce a, a salary cap at the top end is that we can that we maintain the competitiveness of the WSL and also of the women's championship so I don't think we can separate those. I think you can't look at either league in isolation because they're an ecosystem and essentially, you know, the championship in the National League is supposed to feed up into the WSL. So if everything below the WSL collapses, you know, you're in a really precarious and quite dangerous situation. So 
I think the introduction of the salary cap is there to try and prevent, you know, clubs like Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, Manchester United, those with the, you know, really big Premier League backed outfits, um, the multi-billion pound outfits in some case, um, you know, being able to sort of pay their way to the top, you know, being able to sort of afford, you know, some of the super signings, the Jill Rords, the Alessia Russos that we've seen um, this year so that we're not seeing a situation where, you know, Arsenal are absolutely destroying teams that don't have or haven't had the, the sort of resources for funding to be able to get in those big international players or get those top facilities or, you know, pay for the kind of nutrition, diet, dietitian, sports physios, scientific uh, research that some of the, uh, the the top end clubs have got. So I think, um, yeah, Steve does has a point and it, and it hurts me to say that a little bit. Katie, isn't it a bit odd that it's Steve Parrish who's saying this, Crystal Palace fourth in the championship. Is it an excuse for him not to just spend more money on his women's team? Those were my initial thoughts, yeah. Very much siding with what Jesse was saying, pointing out that Crystal Palace's monthly wage bill for the men's team would smash the annual wage bills of a lot of WSL teams. We're at a point in the WSL where even among the better funded teams, among Chelsea, Man City, United, Arsenal, etc., they're operating under the kind of budgets that can pretty much be written off as a rounding error for a lot of the top men's Premier League clubs. And I think that's the frustrating thing that we can all name WSL clubs at the bottom of the table or mid-table who are partner to men's teams who are global brands with huge fan bases, with massive turnovers. We were playing for record, breaking their transfer records in the men's game, paying huge wages, and then their women's teams are not competing in the way that they should be with that. So in the grand scheme of the wages the budgets in the men's Premier League, there are a lot of WSL teams that are underfunded against that backdrop and it would not take a huge uh, dent from their overall club budgets to remedy that. But the problem is that you then go into long term end up with a league that does mirror the power imbalances of the men's Premier League because if you are asking Spurs West Ham, etc., Liverpool to pump in more money, which they will do. And then Chelsea are going to step up and they're going to have to step up again. So that's the worrying thing is kind of where does it go without asking women's clubs to reach a point of profitability and being sustainable by themselves. But then at this, by the same token, it's very difficult to ask them to do that because the only reason they're in this position in the, in the first place is because of all the systemic issues and all the constraints that have been placed on them to hamper their growth in the past. We're talking bans, we're talking underfunding from their parents' clubs, underfunding across the board. So it's very hard to then at this point say, oh, we're going to constrain your growth further um, in the interest of profitability and sustainability because as sincere as that uh, purpose and that aim might be, it's then another constraint after decades and decades of underfunding. So it's a very difficult one to know the right answer to really I, I've got to agree with Katie in terms of the kind of you know raising the standards of the women's game across the board I mean I think one of the things that definitely needs to be looked at and looked at and one of the recommendations in the Karen Carney raising the bar report was to have the introduction of a minimum a minimum salary cap I think that in itself is something that you know you need to especially for, for like, like I said for, the, for those clubs based in London for those clubs in the women's championship you know when you've got full-time players you don't want to ever see a situation where they're not bringing in enough money that personally they have to go and seek you know other the jobs. I mean, that doesn't make them the best athletes that they can possibly be if they've got to end their shift and then go and do a bar shift, which is what some of the Bristol City players had to do, you know, only just last year and the years before. So, you know, we were speaking to, I think it was Ella Powell at Bristol City and she was saying not so long ago, you know, she was having to finish her shift and then go and work in Costa. So, you know, we're still not too far away from those being the realities for some of the WSL players. And, you know, when you look at the championship, yes, I think about 80 to 90% of the clubs are now full-time outfits, but what they're being paid in the championship 
is still, you know, not creating a very financially stable environment for a lot of these players. And some of the players even have children, families to support and they might live or you know, be an accommodation that is far away from their family. So I think we definitely need to see a minimum salary cap, but it's it, it, it's also trying to balance that, like Katie said, with how sustainable that is for certain clubs. When you look at some of the makeups, the makeup of the clubs in the championship, I mean, you've got London City Lionesses, which is a completely independent club, having broke away from Millwall um, a fair few years ago. You've got Lewis, which again is, a, is an independent club and is um, entirely uh, fan-owned. You can obviously buy shares in, in Lewis FC. And then you've got, you know, clubs like Crystal Palace, which are sort of backed by a big Premier League outfit. So and you've got Birmingham's who are sort of backed by by, you know, big men's clubs, but not to the extent that these sort of Manchester United's and Man City's are. So you do have to look at what these clubs can afford. Can if we increase the, the minimum salary to thirty thousand pounds a year, thirty five thousand pounds a year, that's an extra maybe ten, fifteen thousand pounds times the twenty two, twenty three, twenty four players that you've got on your books, and that ends up, you know, into the sort of hundreds of thousands. And these clubs are already on precarious budgets. They're already trying to stretch, you know, what they what little funds they do have coming in every year. So I think that is the kind of that's where you sort of look at the minimum end of things, but that makes sense in terms of looking at the sort of maximum salary cap yes you don't want to limit the only potential of of you know some of these players but at the same time you need to look at the the, the bottom end with a view of making sure that the the leagues and the clubs are all sustainable so that you don't you don't have situations like you know Reading having dropped from the WSL now in the championship then going part-time then you have players leaving then you have players that you know worried about their sort of financial livelihood so or Coventry's you know it wasn't what two years ago or so that we saw Coventry almost collapse over Christmas you know players worried about their jobs because they didn't have that backing of the men's squad so I think you need to really focus on even if it does take more time, is to kind of learn from the mistakes of the men's side and actually create a sustainable, a financially sustainable model for the women's team so they can operate independently. As you said at the start, Katie, it's a really complicated debate and it opens up so many wider debates in the women's game, doesn't it? We'll have to leave it there, but I'm sure this conversation could continue on after we've stopped recording. Thank you so much, Chloe Morgan. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for having us. And thanks, Katie Wyatt. Oh, thank you. For more on everything we've been chatting about today and to read our weekly full-time column, head to The Athletic. You can sign up today for an offer of just £1.99 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com slash WSL. When the episode ends shortly, please do leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow Full Time Europe on your podcast feed. And send in any thoughts or questions on Twitter direct to me at S-P-E-N-N-E-Y 4 or at The Athletic FC. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Penny and the executive producer was Abby Patterson. To discover and listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our brand new daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. The Athletic.